series in the book of James, A Faith That Works. And this morning we're going to cover the topic, True Religion. We started this series a couple of weeks ago. And just a couple of reminders about the book of James. The author of the book of James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to the Jewish tribes, the Jewish people who had been dispersed as a result of persecution in Acts chapter 8. And the book of James is full of commands. Full of things that James says God expects us to do in our lives as we live for him. And so far, we've talked about how to pass the test of life. And last week, we talked about temptation and and how God tests us, but God does not tempt us. And that when we are tempted, we are presented with a choice and we are presented with an opportunity to demonstrate our faith in God and to demonstrate the goodness of God in our lives. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the topic of true religion. The word religion only appears twice in the New Testament. And one of the instances in which it appears is in James chapter 1, verse 27, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But it's general in meaning. When you see religion in the New Testament, it generally refers to worship, especially the practice of ceremonies in honor of a God. And in James's case, he's talking about ceremonies. He's talking about traditions. He's talking about how we should worship the one true and living God. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, Jane's purpose is not to summarize all that true worship of God should involve. That's not his purpose. This is not an all-inclusive discussion of what God expects from us. He's simply reminding his readers and us that true worship without the things he mentions is worthless. And in our culture, religion is a big deal. This week, I I found a statistic that 71% of Americans define themselves as Christians. 71% say they're Christian. Based on the condition of our nation, I would venture to say this is a very misleading percentage of those who identify as Christians, of those who are misled or maybe even fail to understand what the definition of a true Christian is. Because the prerequisite of practicing true religion is new birth. As we looked at last week in verse 18, James says that that because of God's grace, we have a new birth. Meaning because of what Jesus did for us. Because of Jesus going to the cross for us. We can have new birth by putting our faith and trust in Christ. And only those people who have put their faith and trust in Christ can have what James defines as, as true religion. Because without experiencing new birth, without giving your life to Jesus, your religion or your religious practices do not matter at all to God. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus makes this very clear. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? Then Jesus said, I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. See, it doesn't matter what you do for Jesus if you don't know Jesus. It doesn't matter what you do for Jesus if you have not given your life to him. But if you have given your life to him, there are some things that he expects of us 
to do to demonstrate that we have given our life to him. And James gives us some of those things this morning. But true religion begins with a relationship with Christ, and it is demonstrated in a life of obedience to Christ. A changed heart by God should lead to a changed life lived for God. A changed heart by God should, live, should lead to a changed life lived for God. Because true religion, true worship is not about rituals. It's about a relationship. It's about how we live our lives before God. And the reason James mentions certain actions in the passage we're going to look at this morning is the Christians, the dispersed Jews to whom he were writing, they were struggling to make these things a daily part of their lives. They'd been scattered. Their lives had been turned upside down. And now they're being influenced by pagan cultures and, and by worldly values. And some of them may have lost their focus of what true worship and true religion is. And James is simply giving them a reminder. You see, our situation is similar. Our culture is worldly. Our culture promotes laws and ideologies that are contrary to Scripture. And James is telling his readers and he's telling us that if we want to have a faith that works, we must demonstrate true religion in our lives. And he mentions specific and concrete actions that we need to demonstrate on a continual basis to validate our claim that we truly are followers of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to say that we are followers of Christ. It's not enough to say that we believe in Jesus because if we want a faith that works, the evidence has to be visible in how we live our lives for him. And as we go through the passage this morning, I want to ask you to examine your own life and first to see if you truly give in your life to Christ. Because if you're counting on your works to get you to heaven, it's not going to happen. And if you've given your life to Christ, I want to examine you to examine your life in the light of what James says and determine whether or not you are living a life of obedience to God and whether or not you truly are practicing religion and worship of God. So let's look at what James says in verses 19 to 27 of chapter 1. He says, my dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all more filth and evil excess, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and right away forgets what kind of man he was. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue but deceiving his heart, his religion is useless." Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This morning, I want to give you three indicators of whether or not you are truly practicing true religion in your life. The first indicator is this. True religion is demonstrated in our conversation. True religion is demonstrated in our conversation. In verse 19, James gives us some great advice 
He said, be quick to listen, be slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So what's the godly response when we become angry? Think before we speak. You know, you've heard it before, God's given us two ears and one mouth. We're to listen twice as much as we speak. And isn't that so true? Wouldn't we be so much better off if we listened more than we spoke? That's the godly response. But what's the typical human response? It's just the opposite. We are quick to become angry. And then we speak before we think. The term for that is being quick-tempered. We speak without careful consideration. We fly off the handle. I love my dad. He was a great Christian man. But he was quick-tempered. Woo! It ran in his side of the family. And it almost cost my parents their marriage when they, were, when they were young and when I was young. But thankfully, my mom's talked some sense into him and straightened him out. My mom was just the opposite. She was the sweetest person, and she was slow to anger. But when she got angry, you better watch out. But you know what? We all struggle with this issue of anger. We all struggle with this issue of being uh, slow to speak and, and, quit, and slow to become angry. Because there have been times in my life where I wish, where I would have thought before I spoke. There are things I've said in my life when I, after I said them, I was like, why did I say that? Why did I respond in that way? Because we say things in the heat of the moment that we later tend to regret. I remember when I was in college, I'm going to be transparent this morning because I want you to know I struggle with this issue just like you do too. And if you don't struggle with this issue, you're lying. You need to come to the altar this morning and ask God for forgiveness. Because every one of us in here struggles with this issue of anger and not thinking before we speak. But I remember I was in college. I attended a baseball game. There was a pitcher from the other team. He wasn't doing very well. He was about to be pulled from the game. And I was with my group of friends. And I got up and I said as loud as I could, You stink! Except I said suck, not stink, I'll be honest. I'm about to sit down. This woman a few seats down from me got my attention, and she said this. I'll never forget these words. She said, that picture could be somebody's son. She got my attention, and God got my attention. Because I realized the words that I said were not pleasing to him. And I realized that, that I had spoke before I had thought. And after I said that and she said that, I felt about this small and I didn't say another word the whole game. That's not the only instance. I wish it was. This one just happened a, a couple of Christmases ago. The boys were with me in the car and we were coming back from Christmas shopping, going home, stopped at an intersection, minding my own business. Joni knows where this guy <laughs> <laughs> she was the cause of it, but <laughs> but anyway, I stopped at an intersection, stream of cars just flying by, couldn't go, and all of a sudden from behind me, I hear this loud honking, wouldn't stop for about three or four seconds, honking the horn, and I was like, what in the world is this person thinking? And I said something I should have, and my boys looked at me and they said, dad, do you realize that was mom behind you?
I said, no. And I said, you better not say a word. First time, doors open, random mom's door. You know what dad said about you? We've made up since then, but, but I was frustrated. And I said something I'm not proud of, I wasn't happy about, but it's something that came to my mind, and if I would have thought before I saw it, shouldn't have mattered who was behind me, my wife or anybody else. I, I didn't have the right to say that. But in my frustration, in my anger, I spoke before I thought. In both instances, I regretted what I said. I was convicted of what I said. I allowed my frustration and my anger to lead to sin, and I spoke without careful consideration. You see, we must realize that our tongue is powerful. And we're going to look at this in James chapter 3 when we get there in a few weeks. But our tongue is powerful. Our tongue is a deadly weapon. Our tongue has the power to heal and the power to hurt. Our tongue has the power to build up and the power to tear down. Our tongue has the power to encourage and the power to discourage. And once we say it, once we text it, once we post it, there is no taking it back. And let me say this, there's no such thing as a deleted screen post or social media post. If you post something, somebody's going to take a screenshot of it at some point, And they're going to repost it. But once we say it or post it or, or whatever we do with our words, once they get out, they can't be taken back. And don't think that college admissions offices and don't think that employers are checking social media accounts to determine the type of person you are and the type of person they may be offering a mission to or a job to because they are. I've heard of people not being offered a job or being fired because of social media posts. I've heard students not being accepted into a college once the college discovered what they were posting on social media. And you and I have heard of stories of, of posts that people posted 10 years ago coming back to haunt them now. Our words are powerful. And I like what somebody said. Our words are like toothpaste in a tube. They're easy to squeeze out. Toothpaste is easy to squeeze out, but once it's out, you can't get it back in the tube. It's the same with our words. Words are easy to say, but they're impossible to take back. And if we don't control our anger, we will not be able to control our thoughts and our speech. And getting angry in of itself is not a sin. However, our anger becomes a problem when it results in us sinning. Well, you say Jesus sinned, he did. I mean, Jesus didn't sin, sorry. You say Jesus got angry, he did. It's called righteous anger. There are several occasions in Scripture where Jesus got angry. One was in Matthew Chapter 21, verses 12 to 17, when he went in the temple, saw they were selling sacrifices for profit. He got upset. He overturned the tables. He drove them out with a leather strap. That's righteous anger. But Jesus did not sin in his anger. The problem with our anger is it usually leads to sin. People can make us angry. Situations can make us angry. But what I have found Acting out in anger never brings the intended result, but it always brings unintended consequences. Acting out in anger doesn't bring the intended result. It doesn't solve the problem. It brings unintended consequences. You may hurt yourself in your anger. You may hurt your others 
in anger. You may cause physical damage like breaking something or putting a hole in a wall in your anger. And never once have I gotten angry, acted on that anger, and it made a positive difference. It only made matters worse. A lady once approached Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a great evangelist in the early 20th century, one of the most influential evangelists ever lived. And this woman came to him, and she tried to rationalize her angry outburst. She said, there's nothing wrong with me losing my temper. I blow up, and then it's all over. Billy Sunday wisely replied, so does a shotgun, and look at the damage it leaves behind. What he's saying is once you fire the shot, the damage is done. And in verse 21, James writes, anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. We can't accomplish what is right by doing what is wrong. So how do we keep from responding with unrighteous anger? Verse 21, James gives us a solution. He says, by humbly receiving the implanted word. What's the implanted word? Jeremiah 31 through 33. God said to the nation of Israel, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And then Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, when we give our lives to Christ, we are given a new heart that can respond to the word of God. And to humbly receive God's word means we depend on God's word to guide us. And we don't depend on our feelings. We don't depend on our emotions because our feelings and our emotions will always lead us astray. But God's word will never lead us astray. And to humbly receive God's word, it basically means we trust God and not ourselves. And if we get angry, the best thing we can do is to step away, to cool off, and pray, and ask God to help us not to give in to our anger, but to overcome our anger. In verse 26, James says that we have to get control of our tongue. We have to get a tight ring on our tongue. And if we want to control our anger, we really need to get a tight rein on our tongue. Abraham Lincoln, Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. He was angered by an army officer who accused him of favoritism. And and Stanton complained to Abraham Lincoln. And Lincoln told him, he said, why don't you go write a letter to that officer and tell him how you feel? Stanton did, and he showed the strongly worded letter to the president. And Lincoln asked him, he said, so what are you going to do with it? He was surprised at Lincoln's questions, but he said, I'm going to send it. I wrote it, so I'm going to send it. Lincoln said, I wouldn't do that. He said, I want you to put it in the stove and burn it up. He said, that's what I do when I've written a letter while I'm angry. He said, you wrote a good letter. You had a good time writing it. He said, it made you feel better. Now burn it and write another one. I think that's good advice for all of us. And I know in my life, I've, I've sat down and typed an email, and I read it and said, this is going to cause problems if I send it this way. So I didn't send it. I thought about it and never wound up sending those emails. I think the advice that Abraham Lincoln gave his Secretary of Defense was, was good advice, and maybe we should follow that principle. And I don't think the, the idea that if you say it, think it is wise. You've heard people say, well, if you... If you 
think it, you might as well say it. I'm not sure that's wise advice. I would say just because you think it doesn't mean you say it. Just because you think it doesn't mean you say it. And as James says, if we don't control our tongue, if we don't control our speech, we are deceiving ourselves, he says, about being right with God and about having true religion. So how do we get a tight rein in our tongue? We think before we respond. Think before we respond. And, and James says this will allow us to get rid of all the moral filth, all the excess evil, all the wrong thoughts, and to think clearly and to speak righteously. And that word ridding or get rid of in verse 21, it means to take off a garment. It means the removing of clothes. And if we take something off, we put something else on. And there's a spiritual analogy here. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul wrote, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Verse 8 of Colossians 3, Also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Rid yourself. That same word. Take off. Remove. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Paul is saying strip off and remove the worldly lifestyle. Get rid of what your life was like before you became a believer. And then Paul writes in Colossians 3.12, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Here he's saying, put on Christ. And if we want to keep our anger in check, and if we want to control our our tongue, instead of our anger and our tongue controlling us, we must take off the world and we must put on Christ. Otherwise, our anger is going to be destructive. If we don't take off our worldly nature and put on Christ, our anger is going to be destructive. Psalm 37, 8 says, Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. You see, anger can destroy your relationship you have with others. Anger can destroy the relationship you have with Christ. Anger anger can and usually does lead to other sins, whether it's murder or violence or abuse or unwise or ungodly speech. Anger also has physical effects. It causes our heart rate to increase. It causes our blood pressure to increase. It's been proven to cause ulcers and for our lungs to work harder and for us to think less rationally. It also has the effect on sharing of the gospel. How will others respond to your faith if you're known more for your anger than for your love? How will others respond to us telling them about Jesus if we're known as an angry person instead of a loving and caring person? And if we're going to have a faith that works, we have to have true religion. We must learn to control our anger and to choose our words wisely. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 29 to 31, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of, take off, remove all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. You see, if we don't control our anger in our words... We are kidding ourselves about having true religion. In fact, James says in verse 26, if we don't control our anger and we don't control our words, he says our religion is useless and worthless. The second point I want to point out 
As true religion is demonstrated not just in our conversation, but in our conduct. Verses 22 to 25, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, because if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer is like a man looking at his own face in the mirror, for he looks at himself, goes away, right away forgets what kind of man he was, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts. This person will be blessed in what he does. See, if we truly belong to God, we'll not only be consistent in what we say, we'll also be consistent in what we do. Verse 22, he says, We are called to be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's not enough to simply to listen to God's word and acknowledge what it says. Do you know that Satan even knows what God's word says? He don't obey it, but he at least knows what it says. And we must act upon what we hear if we have true religion. We must put God's word into practice. If you attempt to put something together, not only should you read the instructions, but you should do what they say. There are reason they give you instructions with things that you purchase. They want you to follow the directions. Otherwise, it may not turn out well. It does no good to have instructions if you're not going to follow them. It's the same with God's Word. In our lives as Christians, if all we do is listen to God's Word and read God's Word, but we ignore it in how we are to live our lives, it's not going to turn out well. And if we do not act upon God's Word, James says we are deceiving ourselves, meaning we think we're right with God. In reality, we're not. And how passionate we are about God, how passionate we are about his word, is determined by how well we make the Bible an active part of our daily lives. And in verses 23 to 25, James illustrates the importance of being a doer. He compares the one who only listens to the word of God to the one who looks in the mirror, does nothing about it, immediately forgets what he looks like and walks away. Now imagine this. If you got up in the morning and did nothing about what you saw in the mirror. Think about it. Think about if you woke up in the morning and looked in the mirror and did nothing about what you saw. I know sometimes when I get up in the morning and look in the mirror, I scare myself. My hair's all messed up. I look rough. I'm unshaven. My My wife lets me know when I'm looking rough. And if I do nothing about how I look... I probably would not be married, not be allowed to leave the house. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I say, what in the world? I've got to do something about this. Because there are some days I couldn't even pick myself out of a police lineup. I just don't look like myself. And when we look in the mirror, he compares it to looking in God's Word. He says, we are to truly see who we are. When we look at God's word, it shows us that we are sinful people in need of direction. And if we do nothing about it, if we look in God's word and forget what it says, we've read it, we know what it says, but we do nothing about it, we're going to be desensitized to sin and we're going to go on with our lives without changing anything. James says the one who only hears is at fault because he does not act upon what he sees. He says he forgets, and to forget to apply what is in God's word means you read it and you listen to it superficially. You just go through the motions, it's not taken to heart, it has no impact 
on your life. And I would venture to say many churches are filled with Christians who call themselves Christians, who hear God's word every Sunday and do nothing about it the rest of the week. You see, to forget to apply what is in God's word means you read it and do nothing about it. And God constantly warned the Israelites to not forget his mighty acts on, his, on their behalf, but to remember his mercies and his law. Deuteronomy 6.12, God said, Be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. On many occasions throughout the Old Testament, God said, Remember me. Remember my word. Remember what I have done. You know what God wants us to do in our lives? He wants us to remember what he's done. He wants us to remember his word. And to remember God's word and to remember his works and remember his teachings, it means to meditate on them in such a way that they make a lasting impression on our hearts and minds and it impacts our lives. Think about God's goodness in your life. Think about all the things God has done for you. Think about all the things that God has brought you through. And when you think on these things, it should cause you to live for Him. And only when God's Word, when listening to God's Word leads to doing, and only when listening to God's Word leads to our lives being changed, do we truly have the religion that James speaks about. And in verse 25, James describes the doer and he contrasts him with the hearer. He says, the doer looks intently into the perfect law of liberty or freedom. The word looks means penetrated, penetrating absorption. It's not just a glance. The word intently is the idea of bending over, stooping down, looking closely. It's the same idea that happened when Peter and Mary went to the tomb. They just didn't take a glance. They stooped down and they looked intently into the tomb to see that Jesus was not there. And James says that God wants us to look intently onto the perfect law of freedom. God wants us to look closely at his word, not just glance in it. He wants us to take it in. And that that perfect law of freedom, what does that mean? That is the Old Testament law as interpreted and actualized in Christ. And it simply refers to the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave us in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. He said, that's the first greatest commandment. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this, all the laws of the prophets hang on these two commands. Jesus said, everything comes down to loving God and loving your neighbor. And James is challenging us to carefully examine God's word on a continual basis and allow it to penetrate our lives by staying in the word, by studying the word, by memorizing the word, and then applying it to our lives. You know what I found in life is we tend to remember what we value most. And if we truly value God's word more than anything else, We will desire to remember it, and we will desire to obey it. But if all we do is hear God's word, James says we are like someone who looks in the mirror and forgets what they look like. And instead of looking in the mirror being God's word and forgetting what we see, meaning forgetting what we need to do, we need to value God's word more than anything else. 
by remembering it and implementing it in our lives. Verse 25, James says, we are doer of God. If we're doer of God's words and not just hearers, we will be blessed. He says, you'll be blessed for just not hearing God's word, but you'll be blessed for doing God's word. And that word blessed, it implies a present blessing and a future blessing. The present blessing is that you will receive God's grace, God's mercy, God's goodness, God's presence. The future blessing is the ultimate salvation that we will receive when Jesus returns and will forever be in his presence. In verse 27, James also mentions that we are to keep ourselves from being polluted from the world and relating to how we are to demonstrate our true religion by our conduct. The word world is an ungodly worldview, an ungodly lifestyle. It's anything that is opposed to God and goes against his character and his word. And James says we are not to be stained by the world. We are not to allow the world to infiltrate our lives. We are not allowed the world to interfere with our relationship with Christ. But instead, we are to be holy. We are to be set apart. We are to be different. And the only way to be holy, the only way to be different... The only way to be set apart is to live according to the word and not the world and love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And if we truly have received Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, and if we truly love God, then we will desire to constantly work to distance ourselves from the worldly way of life that surrounds us. How? By being a hearer and a doer of God's word. And when we are a doer and not just a hearer of the word of God, instead of being influenced by the world, we will influence the world. Instead of being impacted by the world, we will impact the world. Instead of being changed by the world, we will change the world. This is true religion. Religion that transforms us so we can use by God to transform the world. So I want to encourage you and challenge you this morning. Just don't be a hearer of God's word. Be a doer of God's word. The third thing I want to say, true religion is demonstrated in our compassion. True religion is demonstrated in our compassion. Compassion is love and action. Compassion, the best example of compassion is the ministry, the life, the work of Jesus that culminated in the cross. How did Jesus show his love for us? How did Jesus show he cared for us? By going through what he went through and going to the cross for us. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us, meaning God had compassion on us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we were helpless without Christ. But Christ had compassion on us and was willing to go to the cross for us to help us in our time of need. In verse 27, James says, Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The word to look after That means to seek out someone. It means to go to them in order to care for them. And James says that who are they to seek out? They are to seek out the orphans and the widows. Why? Because the orphans and widows, they had no one to look after them. According to the Old Testament law, it was the relative's responsibility. It was the family's responsibility to look after the orphans and the widows. 
But after the dispersion in Acts chapter 8, which is the Christians to who James was writing, this was not happening like it should have been. In an ancient culture, without social welfare, without opportunities to make money, widows and orphans were helpless to provide for themselves. And God said that a mark of Israel's obedience was to have compassion, was to have concern for those who were helpless, to those who were in need. In Exodus twenty two twenty two, God told the Israelites, Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Basically, God was telling them, if you don't take care of those who are in need, I'm going to make you like them. Those are strong words. That's how much God cares for those who can't help themselves. And he expects us as believers to help those who are hurting, to help those who are struggling. And the Israelites, they were to go out of their way to provide for the widows and orphans. But because of Israel's lack of compassion, God no longer recognized their worship of him. God said to the nation of Israel in Isaiah, and I want to read this, Isaiah 1, 10 through 17. This is a powerful passage of how serious God is about us following his commands and not just going through the motions. Through Isaiah the prophet, this is what God writes. Isaiah 1, 10 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now he's talking to the nation of Israel and he calls them Sodom. That's not a good sign. It continues. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He is now calling his own people like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know the Sodom and Gomorrah, it was full of sinful, un godly people and now he's comparing his own people the nation of Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah that's how far they had gotten away from God's word and just listening to God's word but not doing it he says what are all your sacrifices to me asked the Lord I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle I have no desire for the blood of bulls lambs or male goats And when you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. Does that sound familiar? James says our religion is worthless if we don't do these things. God says stop bringing useless offerings. In other words, your worship is useless to me. I despise your incense, your new moons, your Sabbath, and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They become a burden to me. God's saying my worship has become, your worship has become a burden to me. And I believe when all we do is listen to God's word and we don't act on it, our worship becomes a burden to God. And then he says in verse 14, I am tired of putting up with them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Verse 16, wash yourselves, clean yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Here it is. Seek justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. How serious was this issue to God? 
of taking care of the orphans and the widows and the helpless, it was serious. It was so serious that God said, don't even worship me if you're not going to do these things. If this is not going to be important to you, don't worship me. He's saying you are simply going through the motions and your worship is meaningless because you mean nothing by your worship. And he told them they must repent, meaning turn from their sin and turn back to him and seek justice and encourage the oppressed. He's telling them they were imitate him, that they, just like God, are to be a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. So another test of true religion is the degree to which we have compassion for those in need. Maybe it's orphans. Maybe it's widows. Maybe it's the homeless. Maybe it's those who have physical disabilities. Maybe it's victims of abuse. Maybe it's single parents. Maybe it's those who lose their jobs. We could go on and on, and there's a lot of people that would fit in this group of orphans and widows, people who need us as believers to show compassion, to show Christ's love to them. And James is not saying as a Christian, this is one way we might help someone. James is not saying this is a suggestion, but he's saying if you are a Christian, you are obligated. This is a command for me to look after those in need who have been forgotten, those who are lonely. This is not an option God gives us, but it's an obligation that he puts before us. It's like a parent says to a child, take out the trash or mow the lawn or or clean your room. Your child shouldn't have a choice to do those things. It should be expected that they do those things when you're asked. It's the same idea that James is expressing. He's saying as believers, this is not something we can choose or not choose to do. He's saying this is something that God expects us to do. And he says it's a true test of true religion. It's a test of whether we really love God and whether we really love others. It's a test of whether we are really a doer of God's word or just a hearer. And I want us to think about how we as a church and how each one of us personally can show compassion, can show concern to those in need. Linda mentioned in the announcements we're taking up a collection for Grace Now, which is a a food and clothes closet food pantry ministry here in the city of Richmond. Our youth try to go once a month to work with them to pass out food and pray with people. How can we be involved with people in our community who would fit in this this category of orphans and widows. One way is by bringing a collection for Grace Now. Another way in April, we're going to have a Project 29, which is where we help people with light construction and and cleaning their yards and things of that nature that can't help themselves. But maybe there's more we can do as a church. Maybe there's more we can do as individuals. But we need to understand that God takes this seriously. This, is, this issue of taking care of those who are in truly in need. And because it's important to God, God said it should be important to us. And James says this is a test of true religion. John Calvin said, James does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us being believers that religion without these things he mentions is nothing. You see, James is against religion. James is against worship that is nothing more than just words. He desires for our words to be backed up by our works. And if we want to have true religion, we must control our anger. We must control our tongue. 
We must be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. We must to keep ourselves polluted from the world. We must be blameless and spotless before God. And we must help those who are in need. And we cannot pick and choose what we want to do when it comes to obeying God's word. God expects 100% compliance. And we must allow God's word to be imprinted on our hearts and our minds and to influence every area of our lives. And this is the only way that we can have true religion. These three ways, according to James, are the only way that our worship will truly matter to God. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus. I want to tell you that you cannot have true religion without Jesus. Your works won't save you. Only Jesus will save you. Now, if you're saved, it should result in works, but works by themselves will not allow you to enter into a relationship with God. That is only through the cross. And maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've never given your life to Christ before you can truly worship him. That's the first step you need to take. Or maybe you're here this morning and your conversation is not what it should be. Maybe your anger and your speech has gotten the best of you and maybe those things are controlling you instead of you controlling them. Maybe this morning you need to ask God to help you be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. Maybe you're here today and your conduct is not what it should be. Maybe you've heard God's word, but you're really not doing it the way God commands us to do it. Maybe it's not demonstrated in your life. Or maybe you've allowed the world to influence you more than you've allowed the word of God to influence you. And if you fall in that category this morning, maybe you need to come to this altar and ask God for forgiveness. And maybe you need to recommit your life to him. Or maybe you're here, maybe you've missed opportunities to help those who are in need. Ask God how you can show compassion to those who are hurting, to those who are lonely, to those who are struggling. If you fall in any of those categories this morning, we invite you to come to the altar this morning and and maybe just spend some time with God and ask Him to change your heart in some areas that maybe He's spoken to you this morning. And if you need to receive Christ, I'll be down here at the front this morning. We'd love to show you how you can give your life to Jesus. Or maybe you're here and you've received Christ, you haven't been baptized. We'd love to show you how you can be baptized. Maybe God's leading you to be part of our church. We'd love to show you how you can be part of our church. Or maybe there's other decisions you need to make. Whatever decision you need to make, I would encourage you to come and make those decisions this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll stand as we sing. Father God, we just come before you. God, we just thank you for the truth of your word this morning. Father, we just thank you for how clear you've made it to us of what you expect from us. Father, first and foremost, God, if we want to have true religion,